I'm a graduate of the John Grisham School of Law. Anything I know about law, I learned from John Grisham and from watching some Class A movies about trials and that kind of thing. Some of you will be familiar with some of the classics in that, in that genre. A Few Good Men, Rules of Engagement, and what I think is a cult classic, Legally Blonde. One of the most famous books about trial, of course, is that written by Franz Kafka. His book, The Trial, uh, in German, Der Prozess, uh, was first published in 1925. It's one of Kafka's best-known works. It's an unfinished story. It tells the story of a man who is arrested, prosecuted by a remote, inaccessible authority, with the nature of his crime revealed neither to him nor to the reader it is a frustrating read. Well, we're looking at the trial of Stephen in, as it's reported in the Bible. And the interesting thing about Stephen is that although he's put on trial and given the opportunity, in a sense, to make a defense for himself, rather than express his own defense, he assumes the role of a covenant prosecutor. That was the kind of Old Testament prophet's role to bring forth God's arguments against Israel for her disobedience and to press those arguments home and to secure a verdict against the people of God. And that's what we find Stephen doing. As he brings his audience, those who are listening to him in the Sanhedrin, as he brings them, as it were, under the mirror, against the mirror of Scripture and forces them by the sheer weight of his argument and the force of his oratory to look deeply into that mirror and to see themselves reflected in the mirror of the Word of God. He's been arguing already in this chapter that, that the God that they see as they look in that mirror is a God who is not bound by space or time or race. He's not tied to a land or a temple or a people. He's not under any pressure of time. You see him making promises to somebody that take 400 years or 2,000 years to come to fruition or even longer in their fullness. God is not bound by space or time or history, nor is he limited by human rebellion. He is not limited by his own people's rebellion against his servants that he sends. He's talked about Joseph, that's one of the first characters that he mentions here. Joseph, who, who was the word of God to his family and the word of God to the world in his time. And the savior of the world. He saves his family, he saves the world. And now he's coming to speak about Moses, the greatest spiritual national hero of Israel. And here he shows how God works in Moses' life over a period of 120 years, three 40-year blocks of time. He picks up the story of Moses. And he makes it clear that he has an enormous respect for Moses. That was important because he'd been accused of belittling Moses and the law of Moses. And so he picks up this theme. Uh, he shows his enormous respect but he shows how these themes that he's already been developing are reflected in the story of Moses. How it is that God is able to work 
without a temple, outside the promised land, even away from the people of God, and that God's people have consistently rebelled against or or rejected the Savior or Deliverer that God has sent. Now you see how he starts in verse 17. He starts like this, But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham. This is more than a mere introduction to the life of Moses. He is telling us that the time came, there was a time that had been fixed by God, and that time came, it arrived. It was a time when God was going to fulfill his promise to Abraham. A promise to Abraham that his descendants would actually inherit the land that Abraham never inherited in his lifetime. 400 years had passed and that promise had been unfulfilled, but now the time came. Do you notice the time of the promise drew near that God had promised or granted to Abraham? And at that time, as Stephen narrates the story, a new king emerges in Egypt who did not know Joseph. Here was a a king, a great leader of one of the great nations of the world, but this man who was a leader was no historian. He wasn't interested in the past. He wasn't interested in the lessons of the past, in, in the great blessings of the past. He did not know Joseph. He did not know this significant man who had been appointed a high office by one of his ancestors and who had held that high office for the benefit of Egypt and to the great benefit not only of Egypt but also the world. Here was a a leader, a national leader, who had absolutely no regard for history. Therefore, no memory of a foreign savior in Egypt. Let me remind you who Joseph was. I said to you that already that he was the word of God to his family and the word of God in Egypt while he was there and that God vindicated his word. What he predicted came true. Famines came. He was elevated, he was raised up and exalted, just as he had told his brothers he would be. All his words came true. He was a prophet of God. And the world was saved through Joseph. But here is this great leader, this massive figure, this godlike individual within the religious life of Egypt. And he did not know Pharaoh, uh, did not know Joseph. He did not learn the lessons of history. He was unaware of the purpose of God in history. This has been repeated over and over again, hasn't it, in the history of the world. You go back to the 19th century, for example, in the West, and with the emergence of the doctrine of evolution, there was uh, an impression spread abroad among people that human progress was inevitable. Everything was moving forward and upward. Everything was optimistic. The songs that people were singing were optimistic. Swinburne's great hymn to mankind, glory to man in the highest, for man is the master of things. Everything looked as if it was going to be forward and advance, and and many movements were started called advance or the forward movement. Everything was looking forward to a great century of peace and prosperity for the world. Man was coming of age. And the optimism of the 19th century was smashed upon the rocks of the 20th century as war after war came and went, leaving millions of people 
dead. More people than you can imagine dead because of the technology that man in his wisdom had devised and had turned against his fellow man. We make a big mistake when we forget history. This man forgot history. And yet here we are in the modern era, this postmodern era in which we don't look at history even of the last 200 years. We don't believe in history anymore. We see history merely as a series of events that take place. History is about now. In fact, there was a great article, wasn't there, when the Berlin Wall fell, there was a great article saying this is the end of history. The Cold War is over. Everybody is friends again. We're dismantling our nuclear weapons. History is over. And the modern idea is that there is no future. The the only kind of history you can be is when you get to a certain age, people look at you and they say, you're history. One of the things we learn from this passage is that history is important. God has a plan, and God had revealed that plan to a man. He'd revealed that plan to Abraham. And he had told Abraham accurately. He had given him times. He had given him a time span in 400 years. There was a fixed time. There was a planned time. There was a time connected to the promise of God to Abraham. You read about it. The time of the promise drew near which God had granted to Abraham. The world is not the result of time plus chance. Nor is the world... In human hands alone, there is a plan, there is a purpose of God that spans the centuries of time. So that we can say with the poet, Alfred Lord Tennyson, our little systems have their day. They have their day and cease to be. They are but broken lights of thee. And thou, O Lord, are more than they. God had a plan that is inexorable in its movement towards its appointed end. So that in spite of persecution, in spite of an attempt to eradicate these workers within Egypt, the time came. Not only did the time come, but as the time came, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt. The more pressure that was put on them, the more they're forbidden to breed, the more they bred. The more they're persecuted, the more they're producing. The closer it gets, the more they grew in number and in spite of all the actions against them. And interestingly, the language that Stephen uses here is language that was already being used about the word of God in the book of Acts. The word increased. The disciples multiplied. There in Egypt, they were increasing and multiplying like the word and the disciples were increasing and multiplying. Stephen is signaling to these people, there is something happening in our day, in this day, the day of Stephen and Peter and Jesus. Something is happening that is of equivalent significance in the history of the world as what happened in Egypt when the time came for the promise to be fulfilled and the people of Israel increased and multiplied in Egypt. Now it's against that background that Stephen stresses three major lessons to the people he's speaking to. And let me stress them to you. Put them like this. I'll put them in a negative form. First of all, don't underestimate the person God sends. Stephen introduces us to the lowest moment in the history of 
Israel in Egypt. The ruler of Egypt forced the fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. Basically, you took your baby when it was born to the rubbish tip and you left it there overnight and it was dead in the morning. The Romans did that. Many ancient societies did that. And it was ordered that all infants being born of the Israelites be exposed, all the male seed be exposed and left for dead. Now here is the amazing thing. Do you notice? It's at that moment when the time came, when the worst was happening, Moses was born. Stephen is reminding these people, he knew this, of course, but he's reminding them. This was a God moment. This was a God thing. Even though people didn't recognize it at the time or realize it at the time, and most people weren't even aware of it at the time, so skilled was his mother in hiding the fact of his birth. It was a God moment. And then Stephen then goes on to show these three 40-year blocks of time in which God deals with this man. And in fact, these words punctuate the story in verse 23, literally in the Hebrew, when a 40-year time period was fulfilled for him. Verse 30, after 40 years had been fulfilled. Verse 36, for 40 years. He begins to split down the time of this man and his life. And from the moment of his birth, we're told, he was no ordinary child. He was beautiful in the Lord's sight. Most mothers think their children are the most special children in the world. But Moses' mother was given to recognize that there was a special destiny for her child. And she shielded him for three months from the king's edict of death to Israelite boys. It says that he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, and then he was put in that little boat, you remember, in the bulrushes, the little ark in the bulrushes. And he was left there. And it was a miracle, one, that he survived birth, two, that he was survived three months of life when there was a death penalty out on all little baby boys belonging to Israelites. It was a miracle that he didn't die among the bulrushes, some alligator come across or a crocodile and gobble them all up for his breakfast. And it was a miracle that the daughter of the Pharaoh should happen to be taking a little skinny dip in, dip in the river that, that day. I made that bit up. Uh, and uh, one of her servants found this little ark in the bulrushes brought it to her. And it was a miracle. Rather than report this little baby to the authorities, she took the little baby home, welcomed the baby into her home and into the family and circle, and brought him up as an Egyptian. It was a miracle. Stephen is reminding these people that the gospel is a miracle story. He's reminding these people that at the very heart of the, the message of the Bible, there are miracles. There is the supernatural. There is something beyond what you can see and feel and touch. There are things that are going on in, in the story of the Bible that are beyond our ken, beyond our understanding. They are supernatural things. They are miracles. This was a miracle. Our gospel is a miraculous gospel. We have to say that. It remains that. It was a miracle that Jesus was born. I mean, a virgin birth is a miracle. And it was a miracle that he survived as well. 
Not only that was it a miracle, but it was also a fact that he was thoroughly prepared for a life of leadership, we're told. Again, Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. He learned all of the Egyptian wisdom. We, we don't know that from the Bible, but we know it from Jewish tradition that that is the case, and Stephen is well aware of that tradition and emphasizes its, its reality here by quoting from it. And what we're being told again here, and here Stephen is emphasizing it, the one who delivered Israel was educated not only in a secular setting, he was educated in a pagan setting. He went to a pagan school. He went to a school in which he was being taught all of the magic and all of the sorcery and all of the wisdom of the Egyptians. That's what he learned as he was growing up. And that's the background of the man that God was to use. And God accomplished amazing things in this man, Moses. We're told he was mighty, verses, verse 17 to 22. He was mighty in words and deeds. And, of course, in the book of Luke, in the gospel and here in Acts, that language is language that's used of Jesus. Jesus is someone who is mighty in word and deed, a prophet mighty in word and deed. Luke 24 and verse 19. The message is, don't underestimate the person God sends. And of course, the implied message to the, the audience is this. That God has sent Jesus. A greater than Moses has come. When the angel comes to, to Mary to announce the birth of of her child, he makes it very clear. He says, Behold, you'll conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, and he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Don't underestimate the person God sends. Secondly, don't reject the leader that God raises up. The second phase of Moses' life begins when he decides to visit his people, his fellow Israelites. Listen to this. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And that word visit is not, it's not the English way, uh, usage of the word, the English Usage of the word to visit means that you physically go from your house to somebody else's house to spend time with them. You visit. In North America to visit sometimes is just a conversation that you have, isn't it? Uh, 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 well, in some parts of North America. I should have checked that out before I said it, but to visit is often to have a conversation with people. You visit with someone. After the service, you have a conversation with someone. But the word here in the Bible means to intervene on someone else's behalf. And it's very significant that it was this phrase that appears when Joseph is on his deathbed and he's promising to his offspring the future exodus, that, that they're going, not going to be stuck forever in Egypt. God has a plan. And here's what he says in Gen Genesis 50. God will visit you and will bring you out of this land. God will visit you. Here is now Moses, do you see? Here is Moses at the age of 40, and it comes into his heart to visit 
his brothers. God's put it in his heart. God's going to visit his people through Moses. The same word is used, though not translated in Exodus 3.16, when God reassures Israel through Moses, I have observed you and seen what has been done to you in Egypt. Much later on, of course, at the time of the Incarnation, we find the Lord Jesus, a greater Moses, coming to visit his people. Well, here is Moses. He decides he will visit the people. And do you notice that he acts to defend his people? The story is told, seeing one of them wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. In other words, he's acting to defend a man who couldn't defend himself. And the reasoning behind it is this. Do you notice his reasoning? It tells you here, he supposed, that is Moses supposed, that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. In other words, as Moses went to visit them, he went to visit them to help them. He went to be a defender of them. He went to put his life on the line on their behalf. He gets there. He sees someone being bullied by some vicious person. He intervenes and in the process kills the man who is assaulting the Israelite. He acts to defend the Israelite. He comes to save them. That's what he's come to do. He thought they'd understand that. He thought when they saw this, they'd realize, they'd get the message that he had come to help them, that he'd come to rescue them. But instead, they did not understand that. In fact, instead of welcoming their new leader the following day when he appeared to them, found them in conflict with one another and tried to sort it out, brothers, he said, why are you wronging one another? You shouldn't be wronging your neighbor in this way. They turn on him with a vicious spitefulness. And they say to him, here's how Stephen recalls it, Who made you to be a ruler and judge over us? Who made you to be a ruler and a judge over us? Stephen summarizes it, verse 35, This Moses whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? And he uses the same phrase in verse 39. Our fathers refused to obey him, but they thrust him aside. That's the word. They thrust him aside. This is what they did. This is what they did with their greatest leader. They've been arguing. Do you see? They've been speaking to Stephen earlier on in the day, and they've been saying to Stephen, you come along here and you question the law of Moses. We venerate the law of Moses. We are Moses' men. We are Moses' followers. We are into Moses in a big way. We, may, we wear stickers. Moses is our homeboy. Wherever we go, we want everybody to know we're into the law of Moses. We love Moses. Here you come along and what you say seems to contradict the law of Moses. And Stephen says to them, don't you know your history? Don't you know your background? Don't you know where you're coming from? When Moses was here, that wasn't what you were saying. When Moses was here, you were saying, we won't have you to be a ruler and a judge over us. And you rejected him. You thrust him aside. Didn't want him. Stephen is reminding them. And he's warning them not to push aside, not to reject the leader that God sends. They resisted him. 
The third lesson that Stephen teaches them is this. Don't dismiss the Redeemer that God chooses. Moses was sent on, sent uh, as the leader and the Redeemer or Savior of Israel. And that was all the work of God. It was all God's gracious decision to do this. These people didn't deserve it, as you can see. But God intervened on their behalf and brought a Savior. That's what we celebrate, isn't it? This Advent time. I love Christmas. You're going to learn that because I'm going to say it over and over again. And, and you'll get the message by the end of this year. I absolutely love every part of it, every minute of it, and cannot wait to go and put the Christmas lights up outside our house later tonight. Uh, the the uh, better the day, the better the deed. The Advent season. What's going on this Advent season? Here it is. God has visited and redeemed his people. That's the gospel, isn't it? It's the news that God has intervened for us. As an old hymn puts it like this. Apostles join the glorious throng and swell the loud immortal song. Prophets enraptured hear the sound and spread the hallelujahs round. Victorious martyrs join their praise and shout the omnipotence of grace while all the church through all the earth acknowledge and extol their worth. That's what it is. What you see happening with the story of Israel here as God sends a redeemer is the omnipotence of grace. It's the power of grace that overcomes even the rejection and the rebellion of men and women. Grace that acts over and above all of the resistance that we put up to God's, God's affection and God's love towards us. Grace that overcomes every opposition in order to demonstrate its love for the unworthy people. The omnipotence of grace. And there's another twist in the saga. Because it was in the middle of nowhere. It was when he was far away from the people of God. Far away from them. and Far away from the land of God. The promised land. Out in the backside of the desert. As the old King James put it. When nobody there. That he has this amazing encounter with God. When 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. And it was awesome. We're told Moses, when he saw it, was amazed at the sight. But something more awesome than a burning bush happened at that bush. Something far more significant happened. He heard the voice of God. He heard God declare his identity. As he drew near to Luke, there came a voice of the Lord saying, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. You want to hear the voice of God. Watching a burning bush is a great thing, but you know something? Ten years down the road, twenty years down the road, forty years down the road, when the pressure's on and when, when, when the, the ravages of time are taking their toll on your face and your heart and everything else, the burning bush memory is going to be fading. Let me tell you, the burning bush memory is going to be gone. It's going to be a memory that is now fuzzy and in, inconsequential. But these words burnt into your heart, I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. I'm the God of your history, the God of your past, the God who's had a plan for you, the God who's been working on your behalf. Those words, that voice, that word remains when everything else is gone. He reminds him of his identity. God declares to him his holiness. Moses trembled, did not dare to look. And the Lord said, take off your shoes from off your feet, your sandals from your feet, for the place where you're standing is holy ground. Holy ground. God's saying to Moses, 
Stephen says, listen to this. He uses exactly the same phrase. Remember what you said earlier. You were saying that I was speaking against this holy place. That is this physical temple. Let me tell you this. Stephen is saying to these people. When God encountered Moses, there in the middle of the Sinai desert, outside of the promised land, with no temple in sight, God said to Moses, I'm here, therefore this ground you're standing on is holy ground. Because whatever God is, is holy ground. It was blowing away there his accuser's thoughts. Thirdly, not only did God declare his identity and his holiness, he declared his mission. Listen to what God says. I've surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning and have come down to deliver them and now come, I will send you to Egypt. What's God's mission? It's the liberation of the people from Egypt. It's their rescue from bondage. Stephen is asking the question that they had tauntingly asked to Moses, who made you a ruler and a judge? And he's saying it was God who made Moses the ruler and the judge. It was God who raised him up, God who gave him a word. It was God who appeared to him in the bush. It was God who spoke to him. And here, Joseph now prepares to press home the knife. His accusers had scornfully, scornfully spoken about Jesus as this Jesus. This Jesus of Nazareth, chapter 6, verse 14. Stephen now picks up their language and he applies it to Moses. This Moses, whom they rejected, this man God sent as ruler and redeemer, this man led them out. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, this is the one who was with the congregation in the wilderness. Punchline, verse 40. As for this Moses who led us out from Egypt, we do not know what has become of him, the people said. They rejected this Moses Every bit as much as they had rejected this Jesus, this Moses, this Jesus. Stephen is saying, don't you see what you, don't you see what you're doing? You are simply repeating history. You are reenacting it today. This Moses. But he has something else in his arsenal. Do you notice in verse 37? In among all the other things that that Moses did, there's this little thing that he's thrown in here. He introduces it the same way. This is the Moses. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. Moses is saying to the people, he's saying, I'm a type of Christ. I'm a type of the one God's going to raise up. I'm a type of the Messiah. The Messiah will do what I have done. I brought the people out of bondage. I brought them out of Egypt. I brought them into the promised land. I brought them out by the power of God. And when, when my antitype comes, when the Messiah comes, when this prophet comes, he's going to be like me. He's going to do things the way I did them. Which explains in a marvelous way, really, that little incident that Luke records on the Mount of Transfiguration when Moses and Elijah and Jesus are having a little 
prayer triplet on top of the mountain, and they're discussing what? They're discussing the exodus that Jesus is going to accomplish in Jerusalem. Was Moses giving him some tips? <laughs> of course not. But Moses is figuring in the story there because Moses figured in the story in the beginning. There's going to be a prophet like me who's going to accomplish this great victory. When this prophet comes like Moses, he, he would be God's mouthpiece. Although he'd go beyond Moses in speaking as no other great religious leader has ever spoken. Like Moses, he would be God's agent. But more than that, he would be God's son. Like Moses, he'd be rejected by men and yet... He would go beyond Moses because they wouldn't be content until they crucified him. And just as God sent Moses, God sent Jesus to be the person, to be the leader, to be the redeemer that the world needs. Did Moses speak the word of God? Then Jesus comes with the words of life. What had happened to Moses happened to Jesus. Our fathers refused to obey him but thrust him aside. And when they turned away from Moses, they turned not to nothing. They turned to idolatry. They turned to a calf, a molten calf. They turned to the work of their hands, it says in verse 41. Because when you turn away from the one true and living God, when you turn away from God in Christ Jesus, you don't turn to nothing. It isn't that you... It isn't that if you don't believe in Jesus Christ and don't believe in God through Jesus Christ, you believe in nothing. You can believe in anything, but you believe in an idol. You believe in a made thing, the work of your hands or the work of your imagination. In fact, if you don't believe in God, it's not that you believe nothing. It's that you will believe anything. You believe the latest lie spawned by the latest false prophet. The latest lie spawned by the latest expert. You believe anything if you don't believe in Jesus. Don't underestimate the person God sends. God has sent a greater than Moses, a ruler greater than Moses, greater redeemer who deserves the loving allegiance of our glad hearts. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for our Jesus. How sweet the name of Jesus sounds in a believer's ear, soothes his sorrows, heals his wounds, and drives away his fear. Fill our hearts with love for him. Take these cold hearts of ours. Lord, we confess that we have no zeal very often in our religious exercises are cold, and I feel sometimes even ministering and serving that I lack the zeal and the, the enthusiasm that I should have and that our Jesus deserves. Help us tonight to give to him the affection of our hearts, we pray. In his strong name, amen.